You're listening to TIP. Totally bombed out with AT and no room, no windows, nothing. So we bought it for five thousand, invested, yeah, about a hundred, about two hundred and thirty thousand. And then, yeah, basically, a year into it, kind of quit my job and started doing that full time. So it was most days, just you know, walking or driving up to the building, you know, working all day and then going home. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with John Blatchford to talk about how he got started in the preservation of historic buildings and the advantages of using historic tax credits to improve his returns. This was really a master class in understanding how historic tax credits work and the process for applying for them. You also learn how John has grown and scaled his development company by focusing on the specific niche of historic buildings. John is the founder of Kunst, which is a developer of properties built in the 1800s. He has been involved with over 30 projects in Cincinnati, Ohio, which involved a complete gut of these historic buildings before turning them into modern multifamily properties. John was a college swimmer, is an avid cyclist, and currently is focused on honing his pickleball game in his free time. I love hearing about the kind of projects John is working on and renovating old buildings with a lot of history and soul is really close to my heart. If you want to hear about how someone took the leap from a W-2 salary to diving headfirst into renovation and redevelopment, definitely give this one a listen. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with John Blatchford. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a fellow Ohioan doing interesting things with historic tax credits, John Blatchford. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here today. You're down in Cincinnati. I'm up in Columbus. To start off, we're going to do a deep dive for sure into historic tax credits and some of the interesting renovations you've done in the Over the Rhine region in Cincinnati. Before we get into that, I wanted to hear a little bit about your younger years, just what growing up was like for you. Did your family talk about money, investing in real estate growing up? And also, if you had any entrepreneurial side hustles as a kid. I'm from upstate New York and near Albany, a city called Amsterdam. It's about 12,000 people, kind of an old mill town, rugs and gloves and stuff like that. But yeah, my parents were, my mom was still working. My parents, uh, they play, you know, still around and they're kind of an I guess public servants, most of their life work for the state government. So yeah, there wasn't really any business, entrepreneur, real estate, anything that's, I would say, part of my childhood. You know, my great-grandfather was a mason. Actually, my grandma was an entrepreneur. She owned a, a nursing home that she basically started herself and it became family business with my aunts. I think it was in the in my genes, if not maybe directly from my, my parents or immediate family. So yeah, it was, it was a great childhood. And then I went to undergrad in Binghamton, uh, SUNY Binghamton, and then grad school in Cincinnati. And really the first sort of like side hustle business, we started a company in Binghamton my senior year that was, the idea was basically to sell textbooks on, or sell textbooks on campus. Quarter ends, you have all these books, you could just directly sell to someone else. So I'm sure that exists now, but I actually think the idea was pretty good, but we didn't know what we were doing. And the website, it was great, but after maybe a year, all moved out. And what was that called? TextLink? That was the business? Yeah, so we all kind of scraped together, worked summers, uh, got a website built. And it was a great website. You could just search by the ISBN, you know, now 15 years ago and find any book. So yeah, it was cool. It was fun. And you made a little money doing it, didn't you? No, we, I mean, we have to, we launched a website. I don't even, I think maybe we got to like five users. I think some people started using it, but we all moved to separate cities. And then you were a swimmer at University of Binghamton too. Is that right? Yeah, swimming my whole life. I saw it when I was seven. And yeah, I had some high school records until some jerk broke them. Then sorry, moving up 10. It was part of my whole life. And then what, what did you end up studying at Binghamton? Did you have a clear career path that you wanted to pursue? Or was real estate kind of always lurking in the background as an idea that you wanted to end up doing? I think in, in high school, I took an architectural drafting class and that got in my mind that I wanted to be an architect. And there's always something there of like, I like buildings and cities and I didn't really know what that would look like. So I wanted to be an architect. 
eventually I just applied to a bunch of places, business, engineering, pharmacy, architecture. But I got into the engineering school at Binghamton. So that's, that's what I did. And eventually did uh, industrial engineering, industrial and systems. You, the ideal job is probably like logistics for Amazon or something. So yeah, that was the path. But then pretty soon after I graduated, I went to get an MBA because I thought, I don't think I want to be an engineer. Thought I wanted to get more in the business world. Did you work right out of undergrad? Did you get it, take a job or did you go right directly to go get an MBA? Yeah, I had internships. I mean, I worked at a restaurant in the summers and then I got an internship at IBM. But pretty much as soon as I graduated, you know, took the summer and then went right to grad school. And you ended up at the University of Cincinnati, which is where you're at now. What was that MBA program like? Was it useful to what you're doing now? Yes. Two-year program. And I think the best part, and probably, you know, college in general, is the connections you're making. I um, met a lot of really great people that I'm still friends with, including from around the world. And I think it opened up my mind there. I met a lot of people from India and Europe and China, Taiwan. So yeah, but the program was good. I think it was kind of general, I guess, as an MBA program is. You know, learning accounting and finance and, frankly, Excel ended up being quite useful. And they actually had a real estate focus. And I thought that meant selling single family homes, becoming a real estate agent. So I didn't do that. And I focused on information systems. I thought I would have more like tech software startup past. Going into the MBA program, were you pretty clear that you wanted to do something entrepreneurial or did you think you'd pursue more of a corporate path? I think it was mixed. You know, I had already technically started a company, but I think I was interested in, I started a program. I had an internship in grad school and I learned the basics building a website. And so I thought I would go more to that path. Tech company. Yeah, maybe eventually start my own company. But I, I think my my idea at that time was to work in like a startup environment. You graduated from the MBA program. What year would that have been? Yeah, 2012. 2012. And then you worked a little bit after that before starting your company, Kunst, which we're going to get into. What was your first job right out of the MBA program? It was a very small software company based in Germany. And then Cincinnati was like their U.S. headquarters. You know, it was a strong German presence in Cincinnati, Chamber of Commerce. There's maybe seven of us in the Cincinnati office and um, there's manufacturing software. So we would connect to a, you know, CNC machine could tell you when it breaking down or what the error code were. So yeah, I worked there for two years. Part of that was really amazing. Got to travel all around the world and have a paper about a company and all that good stuff. You know, learned a lot and I learned a lot in project management. Probably a year into working there, bought started looking at our first property and bought it for maybe like 18 months in order from there. You know, at the time it was just going to be a side thing. I just, again, like buildings, architecture, all that. And so started on the real estate app, I guess. Tell more about that. Tell us about the building you bought, how much it cost. The area that you're in is very interesting. Can you describe that a little bit more? You're familiar maybe with, you know, over the Rhine, but I guess for anybody that's not, it's this kind of beautiful historic district in downtown Cincinnati. Uh, it's one of the largest historic districts in the country and has, you know, hundreds of, of contributing buildings. So it's what you can imagine what this beautiful old kind of like human scale neighborhood to be. And so I, I started discovering it in grad school, but really once I graduated, I moved down there. You know, the weekend I moved in, it was this great like music festival and just surrounded by beautiful historic buildings. Like, oh my God, this is the best. But yeah, I just kind of fell in love with the neighborhood and the people there and came across the first building, which at that time, 2013, 14, kind of a little bit after the, you know, great recession and the arc of over the Rhine, like property was still very cheap. So yeah, it's a $5,000 building, kind of this beautiful corner building in, in what is still kind of a tough area in over the Rhine, but just knew that, yeah, I could kind of figure that out. And, and we did three units. Uh, it was totally bombed out, vacant, no roof, no windows, nothing. So we bought it for 5,000, invested, yeah, about a hundred, about 230,000. So how many square feet was that? It was three units. Were you living in over the Rhine at that time or were you? Was it just like an area you loved and kind of on a lark, you decided to spend, what, $5,000 on this building? Like, what's the worst case scenario, right? Like, how bad could it be? I mean, basically, yeah, I can figure this out. I can, we actually raised money in that first project. I had saved some, but, you know, we needed to raise an additional like $50,000, which, you know, was a lot. That was ended up being like 12 people, average $5,000 investment, like 500 up to like 20000 and yeah, so I lived in over the Rhine. The building was like fairly close. So a lot of days, the first year I was working full time. So, you know, after work and on the weekends, we just go there and 
you know, we were a general contractor, so we were kind of hiring everybody. I had some help, friends of mine that had done a bit of construction. And yeah, basically a year into it, kind of quit my job and started doing that full time. So it was most days just, you know, walking or driving up to the building, you know, working all day and then going home. What was it that you first got the real estate bug? What was it that attracted you to real estate? I think to start, it was much more romantic. Just like, this is a beautiful building. It's 150 years old and hasn't been lived in for 30 plus years, 50 years at that point. So it just was cool and it was interesting. And basically my wife now and I just loved it. And so we were working there every day and it was just kind of a beautiful thing. And I, you know, I didn't think that much. I mean, I, I knew Excel, I took finance classes. I, I knew enough to like run the numbers, but it was just probably 8% just the like romantic. I think this is cool kind of thing. Was it an all brick building then? All brick building, three stories, kind of the original, all of our buildings, basically masonry, exterior, you know, old, old roof, wood joists, and then you know, wood flooring on top. And we restored in two of the units, it's the original floors and a bunch. We kept a lot of the original windows, original doors, the original cornice, which you know, I basically painted on a genie lift. And it turned out great. I think we, you know, I sometimes look back, I'm like, how did we do such a nice job on the first one? So were you doing like your own demo? Were you, you sounded like you were subbing out a lot of the work, but were you doing as much of, of it as you can? Were you like refinishing your own hardwood floors? Were you repairing masonry? Anything like that? Yes. Electric plumbing, HVAC, the roof, you know, that was all subbed out. And then we hired people kind of here and there as we didn't have the money or just were interested in to do the work. We would do it. We did like all the cabinets and counters. We restored the floors. I mean, I, so yeah, I mean, me, I'm saying like, and my wife. And, and then we hired basically like three laborers. It was kind of just the crew of us there every day. I get stuff done. What was it that allowed you to quit your job? Had you saved up a bunch at that point from your work? Or what was it that gave you the confidence to leave your W-2 job to pursue this? Because it was just one building at that point, right? I'm just kind of interested about the thought process of how you decided to leave your W-2. Yeah, it didn't really make sense. And looking back, I'm not sure I would do it the same way. Yeah, I was basically like 25 and I had some savings, so I basically put it all into this building. So like financially, it wasn't a smart thing. I think I was annoyed enough with the job that I wanted to quit. And I was as interested enough as I could be in the real estate that I was like, okay, this makes sense. Like, I'll just do this full time. But it wasn't very like wise. Okay, I have savings and I've done five buildings and now I'm ready. To, it's like, I just like, oh, I don't want to work anymore. And I want to do the building should work out in the end, but wasn't like that well thought out, I'd say. Were you married at the time or was, did that come later? No, that was, yeah, we basically, we like buying the building and us starting dating was like basically the same time. That's very cool. And that can make or break a relationship. Doing a project like that is taxing. It's a little strenuous and stressful for sure. My wife and I are renovating a building together right now and it's had some challenges. So how did that go for you and your, your now wife? I think we look back on that time in a really positive light. Plenty of nights where we're just like drinking beer, bumper music, and just like working at the buildings or at the building. So yeah, I think it's good. You know, now like I learned a lot of lessons over time of like maybe not to work with partner, uh, have some professional separation. But yeah, for certainly in that time, in that building, like good, good memories. Is she still involved with the real estate that you're doing now or is she, has she moved on to do other things? Yeah. So, you know, I did maybe our first like four historic cash credit applications and she has done now like 30 since then, you know, including for other developers. She's kind of taken over that part of the business. She's a historian. So, you know, has her own independent work. She's a published author, but so still a bit of her time is working in with goods, but less now. Early on, were you doing a lot of reading about real estate, listening to podcasts to get inspiration? Were you doing things to kind of further your knowledge and education about how to do this project? Yeah, I think a lot of it at the beginning was more on the construction side and lucky to know a lot of good people in Cincinnati that were were willing to help and were very helpful, small general contractors, friends that were doing similar work. And I think that was a lot of the early learnings. You know, how do you set up contracts, lien waivers? You know, who should I call for this? And then just like education by fire, I think, you know, asking all the dumb questions. I mean, probably in 2012, I didn't know anything behind the drop, like in an apartment or, you know, like didn't know anything. So that was the main learning, I think. Just just learning a lot about construction was sort of mentors around me. And then 
some research online podcasts and stuff like that, but I think it's been a lot more education of like by pain and, and from people around me. It's probably the best way. How did you find that general contractor to do the work? Did you hire a general contractor or were you functioning as your own GC? For that first building, a friend of mine, he, he has now what's maybe like a 10 person sort of construction company in Cincinnati, you know, same age and he's been on maybe like a somewhat path, but so the idea was like, we would partner on it. He would have some small equity. He'd be like the GC and, or more like advisory GC where I would be doing most of it and he would help. So that was really useful. And then kind of as I quit my job, like took over more of that where he was like consulting, I would say. And, and we were technically the GC and hired, you know, a couple of guys from Craigslist and just figured it out. And then at what point did you get turned on to historic tax credits and pursuing those? So really from the first building, I think a friend of mine mentioned there's these historic tax credits. And so I, you know, researched and went down the rabbit hole a bit and found a consultant and I was like, yeah, what, what does it look like to hire you to do these tax credits? And he said, you know, gave us fees and then sent me like PDF. It's like, this is what I would produce. And there was, you know, like a 10 page PDF. And I was like, oh, I think I could just do this. I don't, maybe I don't need to pay this guy. So basically I just did the first one. Fortunately, it wasn't that competitive at that time. And we won tax credits on the first one, but like anything from doing one, probably then knew more than, you know, 80% of people then did the second one and just has not become like expertise, but really just figured it out. Did you know, like when you bought the $5,000 building that it would be a candidate for a historic tax credit? We probably would have done the building anyways, that first one. I think I kind of figured out through the process of like, oh yeah, I knew it was historic and maybe that was an historic district, but figured out kind of through the process of like, okay, there's these tax credits and it would qualify like, okay, I think that would make it financially better. So yeah, it wasn't like, wasn't part of the plan maybe initially. Explain to our listeners, we've got mostly like kind of beginning intermediate investors, exactly how a historic tax credit works and what the benefits are. It's effectively the the government trying to incentivize a very high level of historic preservation. You know, I think coming out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, governments realized we should preserve some things. You know, there is value in that. There is, you know, character and, and all this stuff that's important about historic preservation. So basically, you know, say it's a million dollars of construction. The state of Ohio will give you 25% credit and the federal government will give you 20%. Credit. So combined, say 45%, something like $450,000 on a million dollar project. And that really is like a deduction of the taxes you would have to pay. You know, there's different ways to basically turn that into money. You can sell the credits to people in Ohio. That credit is refundable. So if you can't use it, that the state government will actually pay you that money. But yeah, so it ends up being like a something 30 to 45% kind of discount on your construction. So with the state, I was listening to your interview with Chris Powers that you did. And does the state actually send you a check for the amount of the 25% directly like at tax time or, at, you know, shortly after tax time? Is that how that works? Yeah. I mean, the first project, you know, we finished it and did all paperwork and then. And that was the $5,000 place that you bought? That was your first tax credit yeah. project, right? Yeah. I think the state credit was 35000 it was just direct deposit, like any, I guess, tax refund. I, you know, I put in my bank information and then one day I looked in and was like, oh, that has not. And then the federal is 20% and that is a deduction from your, how does that work? Because that's not a direct deposit into your bank account, correct? Yeah. So it's basically, you know, you have a $200,000 credit. So if your income qualified and you had a $20,000 tax bill one year, you could just use a 20,000 of that credit instead. And so you pay basically no tax. You know, it depends on the investor. It depends if you can use it on the first projects. And even now, like I, I can't personally use not that much federal tax liability, but you know, investors can often use them or you can just sell them to somebody that isn't even in the project that can use the credit. And that's how we do it now. So you're selling that credit to other investors that need to offset their income. Is that how that works? Yeah, exactly. And is there a secondary marketplace? How do you get connected with people that want to buy the tax credits? There are some like lenders that can understand it the best. There's, so there isn't like a good secondary market. I think there probably could be as for a lot of these tax credits, you know, there's new markets and income housing and all the stuff which trade, but it's very kind of opaque and hard to find. And the best way I've found is through like CPAs, tax people that have clients that can use them because they can help facilitate the, the sale and also can like understand it and explain it. 
that's how I found, but you know, you could sell it to someone, you know, you could do whatever, but, and there are, so there are syndicators, people who do this as a job. And then when you sell them, you don't get a dollar for a dollar. Are you selling it, you know, as a percentage of that tax credit, like a little bit, I don't know, 80 or 90% of, of the, what the tax credit is worth. Yeah. They're going to price in both like when they will get the tax benefit and also maybe the risk of the project because their risk of buying the credit is project never gets done or you screwed up and you don't get the tax credit. So they're going to buy it at some rate that, you know, they would a fair return. So anywhere from maybe like 65 cents to 85 cents, something like that. Do you ever sell the credit before, like way before the project is finished? Like, will somebody take a risk on that? Or is that, do they want to see it pretty far along in terms of completion to know that like, yeah, this thing's going to finish and I don't think I have too much risk here? Yeah. I mean, you, you can sell it pretty early, even as part of like your initial equity or capital in the project. You know, they're not going to put in all the money up front. So you might have an agreement to buy them, but only 25% of the money is in upfront, 25% at drywall complete, 25% occupancy, you know, something like, you know, the actual payout is going to be mostly to sort of make that risk. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So I want to talk about at what point did you form your company, which is it's Kuntz. Tell us what that word means and how you ended up. At what stage did you form the company? Yeah. So we bought the first building, end up 13, working on it for a year. And then basically I quit my job and I was like, okay, I think I actually build a company around this. Uh, like 2014, 15, formed the LLC, actually made it a company. So yeah, Kunz is a, it's a German word, just means artist. The idea we're in over the Rhine, which was a very German neighborhood. That was the main motivation. It was, you know, a short name, 
domain, pooks.us was available. When you structured the company, did you have in mind how, what kind of projects you were going to do? Did you know you were going to continue to do these you know, historic tax credits and over the Rhine, or did you have any other kind of vision for the company? The idea, which has kind of come to be, is just more of what we had already done. So, you know, finished that one building, it went reasonably well, first one. And then basically that first building maybe raised $60,000. And then we did kind of two buildings at once and raised maybe $200,000. But the same exact thing, like a quarter mile away. So historic tax credits, historic renovation, same thing. And that's what we've done on every building. I think in forming the company, the idea was we're just going to keep doing this and you know, do as much as we can in Cincinnati. And maybe at some point, you know, the model works in other cities. Tell us about Cincinnati. What, what is that market like? How do you like working there? Do you ever, I mean, you mentioned maybe expanding to other cities. What cities would also interest you? I mean, Cincinnati, I had never heard of it before I went to grad school there. You know, went to University of Cincinnati, was there for two years. And I guess I would say fell in love with the place. For anybody that hasn't been, it's, it's certainly worth, you know, at least a long weekend. So yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful historic city that probably has the same environment. Maybe people have been to like Savannah or Charleston, where it's just like so much dense historic architecture. And, but then on top of that, you know, it has very great restaurants, has symphony and the opera and, you know, major league sports teams, dominant league soccer team, like it, you know, everything I think you want in sort of an urban environment and maybe at half the cost that you could find it in the coast. So it's just a really compelling place, I think, for that reason. And yeah, I mean, it has made it a, a good place to do, to do real estate. And it's not a booming market. We're not relying on this major influx and cap rate compression and all this, this crazy stuff. It's sort of like, yeah, it's stable. There's good employers downtown. P&G is there. Kroger is there. And it's a beautiful place. And I think in the recession, it's probably fine. And then the boom times, it's basically stable. I think that's kind of the pitch. But yeah, I think there's other markets like that. I think, you know, Pittsburgh is probably a bit ahead. Nashville the same. But yeah, Louisville, Cleveland, even Detroit. I think there's a lot of development in there. St. Louis. I think a lot of like cities in the Midwest. I mentioned I'm in Columbus and I, I live in German Village, which is obviously German influenced. And it sounds like over the Rhine is as well. Very heavily German influenced town. Why was that? How did that develop historically? I think, you know, like now there's sort of chain migration. It starts with a small group of people. And then once enough people go... You know that you can get a job. You know that largely you can still speak in German. I think there were 20 German language newspapers in Cincinnati. You know, like a Chinatown or like anything now, you can go and it can be a version of where you came from. And you can get jobs and, you know, have a place. I think the power grew in Cincinnati and, and all the architecture remains. Uh, yeah, and same, obviously, at German Village, too. Lucky for that. Yeah, I love it. The exposed brick and the original hardwood floors, it's really hard to beat that. Is that something you initially fell in love with? And your future projects, do you always try to find those kinds of, of homes and apartment projects to buy? Yeah, I mean, the first one, you know, it was in very bad shape, but two of the floors, we held the original floors. So it's 150-year-old solid hardwood. It would be quite expensive to do now, and it was just already there. So you just had to sand it and finish it. I think that's maybe a theme in all these buildings where it could seem really annoying and difficult and it's old. And why would you keep the old thing? Like, don't you want the new and is new just better? And I think, you know, oftentimes it is, I think insulation and soundproofing and so many things of, that we've invented have made our lives better. But, um, but I think a lot of the original stuff is quite good. It's old growth trees that are very expensive. Now it's a custom decorative plaster molding. It's a ivory handle on the door. Yeah, you can't re recreate the soul of old stuff. I had Eric Weatherholtz on the show, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and he was talking about the Easton, which is a project in Columbus, and it's a great outdoor development, you know, really well done, but it doesn't compare it to like the history and the tradition that is in German Village and the old brick homes and the brick roads. Like you just cannot recreate that with new as hard as you try. And I think, you know, that does come through with, with renters, you know, a way to drive returns and to do well in real estate is to create something that's differentiated, that's nice, that's high quality. And I think that's already just there with an old building. Uh, you just kind of need to bring it back to life. So you don't have to be that really. You just sort of have to give a little care to what was there. In doing my research for the interview, I saw that you also published a magazine called Kunst. Talk about that. What was the inspiration to do that? Yeah. So we, uh, my wife and I, we got a grant to do Kunst magazine and I think it was a mix at the time. I don't know if I thought it would be like good marketing or just a cool like side project. 
But we created two issues. We're just trying to tell the story of other people doing things like us, renovating and adding over the Rhine, people building and creating the artists. So it was, yeah, it was more like a side passion project. And when we sold them and we maybe broke even on it. And you would focus on like local developers or guys like you doing similar projects strictly in over the Rhine? Yeah, pretty much just over the Rhine or downtown. We did a craftsmanship issue. But, you know, the craftsmanship one, we went out to Indiana. Guy who was doing all this custom millwork, he had like 300, you know, knives for different moldy trims and all this stuff. And so we photographed his shop, you know, with a photographer. And so it was, it was stuff like that, just trying to tell the story of people, uh, yeah, that cared about what they were doing or cool things. I wanted to go back to that first project. Once you completed it, how long did the, did it take to complete it? Cause it's a pretty big project to do a renovation like you're doing. How long did that take? And then what was the next step in terms of renting them? Did you move in? What happened next? It was about 18 months from purchase to occupancy. So we created the three apartments. We got the tax credits. We also got the property tax abatement. There was never an idea. We thought maybe to live there, but it was, wasn't really in mind. But good friends of ours lived there, which you know potentially was challenging, especially when the artists went out in the winter. And also that, you know, we thought the project was done. We said, yeah, you can move in. And, you know, I forget. And they were living with a friend and said, ah, actually, it's February. And I got pushed back a few months, maybe until June or so. Uh, yeah, so the idea with that building and really with all of our buildings, like we're going to rent it out, I don't know, forever. But at some point it makes up the sell it, price is good. Depending on our situation or the investors, like we'll sell. And yeah, we owned that building once it was done for three years and then sold it. So how does that work with the, both the historic tax credit and you mentioned the tax abatement, does that transfer to, do, does the new owner benefit from those at all or no? The tax abatement does transfer property tax abatement. The tax credits typically do not. So after occupancy kind of gets the ownership locked in, so can't sell it in, can't you know, sell the building with the credits. So they say like subject to recapture. So the federal credit, technically they could come and take. We sold it in year three and the credits left five years, they could take two years of those credits. So in that case, I think we probably had a year left on the federal credit, but we hadn't used all of it anyways. And so it really matter. So the next project, I wanted to hear how you structure. Do you structure each project as an individual LLC with your limited partners? How do you do that? Is each one a separate project or do you have like a fund that you're doing? For the first like six years, it was, you know, the syndication model. Each one is a separate building, separate LLC, separate investor group, like equity split, CEs, all that. So each building was like really independent, which I think is good, you know, to be siloed, but also it does create complexity. So that's, that's what we did basically for the first five years. And so, yeah, for the second project, it was really like two buildings at once that were right next to each other. And those are two separate LLCs, two separate investor groups. So you were doing the project management, whatever you want to call it. You're doing the the leasing, the managing the project itself or leasing them. And you're also doing the accounting side of it. Did that get too complicated at, at some point? Do you manage all of that in-house or do you have any third parties that come in to help you with that? Yeah. So I think a key lesson has been, you know, I think it's attractive to be scrappy. And I think that's really important. And, you know, I did all the bookkeeping and we were at the GC doing a lot of labor. We were the property manager for the first five years of the business. And I think that can seem interesting and maybe clarities from that and maybe pay someone that's overpaid, like, all, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, ultimately, like, it doesn't make sense to be doing the accounting and taxes. Like, there are people that do that. They're highly optimized to do it and it's worth it to pay them. And the same thing with property management. You'll be lucky if you can build one business well. You certainly can't build, like, four businesses well. At once. So over time, kind of you know, learned from that and, and have done less and less. So right now, I'd say we're truly like developer, tax credits, and general contractor. What's an average day look like for you right now? Probably like 50%, I would say financial, including like investors, current investors, pension investors, you know, the opportunities of compliance, potentially selling tax credits, financing. So I think that's a lot of it. And 25% might be like, I would say development, which permitting, design, architects, you know, everything basically from purchase until MC. And then 25% is probably construction. You know, we're the GC, we do turbid construction. So just like monitoring that, but you know, mostly Gmail, Excel, those are my two, I guess. 
I saw that you're into Notion as well. Yeah, that's been a lifesaver. We, we use it for invoicing and it's like absolutely fantastic for that purpose. Strictly for invoicing? Yeah, we use it for everything. I mean, we, now it's for like our wiki, our internal wikis. You know, in the ideal case, any, any function that we're doing will have a place in there. You know, if I would send you an email and say, hey, Patrick, can you, you know, pay our accounting bill this month or pay our you know, tax bill? I'd say it's number 3.2 in our wiki. And just look, you watch a video, a Loom video, and, and you know how to do it even if you had never done it before. That's how we try to use it as like a wiki resource where we store our information, yeah, and numbers, kind of stuff like that. And that accounts payable and, and our daily construction ports as well. And then what's the company look like right now in terms of employees? How, how many employees do you have helping you do all of this? So there's me, you know, my wife, who is part in the business, works on the tax credits. And then we have a director of construction, project manager, and superintendent. That's kind of our construction team, three people. Then we have like an accountant keeping all the books. And then we have like part-time finance guy who is working on the loans and tax credits, opportunities on all that. So that's kind of our you know, internal team. And then, you know, of course, work with lawyers and accountants and all that. What's the competition like for historic tax credits? Are there a limited amount that are granted per year? The, I would say from the properties, you know, are we competing to buy properties? Uh, I think yes, but it's much less competitive because it's old buildings, it's restoration. You have a historic conservation board that's going to oversee your project. You know, it's going to have an opinion on what you do on the exterior. So there's a lot of like headaches that don't exist in a lot of real estate. So I think that is you know, potentially you can get past that, like to our advantage, where it's just a bit less competitive to buy. And then the credits themselves, you know, the federal credit is not competitive. And so typically if you apply, you'll get them if your building qualifies and you do the right work. The state credit is competitive in Ohio. And so there's, you know, a certain pool of money and all the projects in Ohio competing, you know, we're competing at projects in Columbus and Cleveland and everywhere else. You can basically apply twice a year and each of those rounds is competitive with all the other projects applying at the same time. Now, are you doing the application after you've made the purchase of the building? Would that, like, if you don't get the tax credit, is it going to, it's obviously going to affect your numbers. Does that happen ever where you just, you've bought the building, you've done the, you've done the application, but you aren't given the tax credit? Yeah, there is some risk there. Buy the building, don't get the tax credits. And, you know, what would you do? Eventually you have to sell the building. So we, fortunately, we've gotten the credits on every project. I would say it's near 100% chance we'll get them eventually. Maybe you have to apply twice. Worst case, maybe three times. But there is that risk. But yeah, so you basically have to get the credit before you start construction. So we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't start on a project, invest a ton of money, be halfway through construction, and then find out we, we can't get the credits. Uh, like that would never happen, but, you know, it's possible. So you granted the credit prior to even doing any demo or anything on the building? Yeah. And you actually have to be, I and mean, they want to make sure that you haven't torn out the beautiful medallion plaster ceiling and then applied for credits afterwards. So they, they don't want you to do anything until you apply. Now, do they walk the project with you to take a look at it or are you just sending photos in or how does that application process work for you? The whole thing is just photo based. So you take tons of photos and then you have like a photo key. So, you know, they know where they're in the building and what they're looking at. So they, they sit in Columbus, they have the you know, the right, I think, to come inspect the project at any time. But, you know, they have so many projects that we've probably had like four site visits, you know, in seven years. And what's it like working with the Over the Rhine, the Historic Association? You know, in Cincinnati, they have this Historic Conservation Board, which, you know, this, they kind of govern Over the Rhine. They govern any like registered historic building in Cincinnati. And in my experience, like third grade, because they're headed by a person who knows what they're doing. So they kind of have like a single point person that's going to review the project and review everything and have a somewhat impartial opinion. And then the board, like by statute, is made up of like a developer, a finance person, a historian. You know, they have like the qualifications for, I think, the five people on the board. They come at it from all angles and they end up, I think, being pretty fair. Just for my own selfish reasons, I want to know, like I'm in German village and I also, I don't know if you're familiar with Franklinton, which is in another historic area that's getting fixed up outside of Columbus. How do I find out if something is available for a tax credit or, or if it's not like German village is obviously a historic district, but I don't know if my house is available for that. I've got an office building that I'm working on. I'm not sure if that's available for a tax credit. How do I find that out? Yeah, I think the best way is probably 
you know, either the, if you have this like historic conservation board, like a local governing body that deals with historic, ask them, or like a nonprofit, like in Cincinnati, we have Cincinnati Preservation Association and they, they would be a good resource. But basically it's like, you know, there's a national historic district. There's a map for that. I think German villages as well. And you know, as long as your building is within that and it qualifies, you know, there's like, there are ways you could probably go figure it out through research and libraries. But I think this would be local conservation board or historic group. And in general, you've got to apply for the credit before you begin any kind of work, correct? And yeah, and even be awarded the credit before you do anything. Are there oftentimes that you've seen people do work on a building that they would have been eligible for a tax credit, but they don't apply for it and they miss out on whatever, 20 or to 45% of, of a credit on the project? Does that happen often? Yeah, I think it probably happens all the time and over the Rhine. And is that just because they don't want to mess with it? Yeah, don't know about it, don't want to mess with it, which I can get. I mean, there is an efficiency of just doing the project, kind of getting it done, not dealing with all this stuff. So I definitely get that. But I, I imagine it's more like lack of knowledge or they don't know it's available or, or the benefit of it. Because I'm sure of all the buildings renovated over the Rhine in the last 20 years, uh, maybe 25% of them have gotten tax credit. So it's, I think, the most don't, even though they could. My favorite beer is Rheingeist and that the building is in over the Rhine. Was that a project that was a historic tax credit project? I don't think they did. I know that they started with a lease. And so, you know, they didn't own the building. I think they were just doing like the leaseholder improvements, paying all the tanks and everything in there. And then they bought the building like year four of operation. So I imagine that even if they had known about the credits, it probably wouldn't have quite worked like how they did it. But yeah, it's a great historic renovation. It's a great area. So you did that first project. How many have you done to date? It sounded like quite a few at this point. We've completed and sold four, four buildings, like 20 units. We, we have three that are under construction that are about 40 units. And then uh, we have two probably upcoming that would be about 30. So, you know, we're only at like 100 units total. So yeah, it's quite small. And how do you decide whether to keep or to, to sell a project once it's finished? I think, you know, maybe something we'll talk about is like, what's a controversial thing? I think real estate operators want to have the idea of like, I'm a long-term owner. I'm going to own this property forever. It's like a multi-generational thing. And that's great. But like selling real estate is also very great. I think if you're a real estate investor, if you already have a lot of capital, yes, investing in real estate forever makes sense. If you're an operator and you like relatively don't have, you know, that much capital, I think selling it makes sense. I've become much more like, interested, I would say generally in selling and, you know, put it on the market, see what the price is, see what the returns would be. You're not a forced seller. Your debt doesn't requirement. You're not in strain, but if someone makes a great offer and you can make a lot of money on it, then sell and build a business. And you've done that in three cases. Is that what I've heard? Yeah. And we're, we're selling uh, another building now. So that'd be the fourth. And then do you do a 1031 exchange at that point, or are you using the funds as operating funds to do more, more projects? How do, how do you, what do you do at that point? Yeah. I mean, pretty much the money has gone then into following projects, you know, trying to build up some skill that way as well. So you don't really have an exit strategy for each project. It kind of just kind of depends how things unfold and how they develop. If you get a good offer, maybe you'll consider selling it. Otherwise just consider renting the units. Yeah, we have long-term debt and the tax credits will typically require on the buildings for at least five years. Now we've been doing a bit of opportunities on investing. So typically, you know, want to own the buildings for 10 plus years. So we have some like, well, you know, we're pretty long, longer term oriented in general, but if it makes sense to sell, well, we would sell it. And then do the LPs, do they get much say in that? Or is that your decision as a general partner? How does that work? That's been a mix over time. Some projects, I would say, I don't have that much control. Like, I, you know, like legally no control to sell the buildings. And so then it's kind of totally up to the LPs. I think in other ones, even if I have the control, you know, I certainly wouldn't sell it. Our investors didn't want to. Or if we couldn't set up some 1031 exchange, like you said, or opportunity zone. So, uh, yeah, I think it's more like, do we all agree on this? I want to talk about raising capital. How you talked about cobbling together you know, the money for the first project, have those investors stuck with you? Have you sought out new investors? Uh, what's it been like raising capital for these projects? Yeah. So on the first building, you know, all those investors are still invested with us. So now almost 10 years, probably. 
So that's been good. And then, yeah, kind of always like an expanding group, larger capital amounts, you know, start with maybe like local business people, people that have been successful. And then, I mean, frankly, through Twitter and networking have kind of expanded that to New York, West Coast, uh, people who have sold companies, people who did really well in, in tech or, you know, the company IPOing, something like that. Yeah, the group has expanded. I think we have, you know, a lifetime, maybe 50 investors. An average investment uh, is probably $200,000, something like that. And how has Twitter affected your business? You know, at the kind of start of COVID, I was like, I just kept hearing, I think in podcasts and, you know, online, whatever, people like, yeah, Twitter is such a powerful force. It's helped my business, whatever. So I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to post every day. I don't really have an idea of what this will do, but that's my commitment. I'm just going to post every day and see what happens. So yeah, it's been pretty crazy. I think relative to like my network, network I could create otherwise, the wealth in my world without Twitter, like it's absolutely life-changing. Uh, probably the only reason maybe you know about me. And yeah, crazy. You just get exposed to people building really big businesses that if you message them or they see you and it just builds the trust. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. Do you also use it as a venue for learning? Do you learn a lot from real estate Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, in general, try to follow like a small group that I think is highly valuable. As much as I love Twitter, I try not to, you know, be too much on it, I guess. But yeah, there are some really fascinating people. I mean, just the basics of like, what's a fair fee structure? What's a fair like split with investors? I mean, if I had known some of that stuff, you know, three years earlier, it would have probably changed my life, my business. And it's stuff that's just there for free and all these years of experience and uh, mistakes that people have made. So it's, it's really valuable things. So yeah, I, I've gained a lot and I still gain a lot and people will post stuff on there that I should have known, you know, unlivered your doc yield on costs, like a pretty basic sort of real estate metric. I probably first learned like two years. Like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Can you explain what that is for our listeners that don't know what it is? Yeah, basically. So, you know, there's like a cap rate. It's like basically the same thing. You have your total cost into a project. If it costs a million dollars and then you have like your net operating income that comes from that project, which is basically like cash that's going to come out of it, excluding your loan and like capital expenditures and stuff. So, uh, it's basically a way of like figuring out the multiple of the building. And so, you know, the higher the cap rate, the better. When the market's very frothy, you know, 4% cap rate you know, means you're buying at like a you know, 25 times multiple on its net operating income. Yeah. Higher cap rate technically is better. But, you know, the idea of like, okay, you have as a total investment in, you're going to have this sort of like singular number that's going to somewhat determine if it's a good investment or not. That's basically like your unlevered on cost is like the same thing as because they blast the cap rate the day the project is done. Do you have any other metrics that you look at before when you go into a project to determine if it's a go or no go decision on, on buying it? Yeah, I think that's the main one is sort of like green light, red light. And, but there's other like sanity checks, you know, like what percentage of your rents comes as your net operating income. You know, if that number is too high, if you have 90% of your net operating income against your, your rents, then that probably your expenses are too low. You know, you're missing something or you're not properly guessing the tax. Like property taxes that we paying. So, so that, like, what's that percentage? I think for us, it's you know, in the range of like 25, 30%, like our expenses or our, our rents. So it's more like Sandy checks like that. And, you know, debt service coverage, I think that's very critical. I think people get interested in like loan to cost, loan to value, all that's important, but it's sort of the main thing is like, can you make your loan pay, even if your rents drop? So I think that's important, you know, and we do look at long-term returns. I think it's always hard to guess, like, what's the building going to sell for in year five? What's your interest rate in year seven? Like, all that stuff is everyone is guessing. But we do project it out like five or 10 years and just see, like, what the annual term will be as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day to day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. 
Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Moses Kagan had this post a while back about just advice that you or he or Eric Weatherholtz or Sean Sweeney would give to somebody just starting in real estate. For somebody that is interested in doing what you're doing, doing historic renovations, using historic tax credits, what's the best advice you have for them on how to get started doing something like that? The advice for probably starting a new business is like, you do kind of just have to start. I don't think you, that has to be very large. You don't have to raise a million dollars out of the gate. If you have a duplex, if you buy a condo, if you own a single unit, like, okay, what does it look like to redo the kitchen? So I think you can do like a very simple version of whatever it is you want to do and just get started. So I think that's good. And then, you know, I think one mistake I've made and I see, I still see maybe online is like the idea of you don't need C's. You can just have it all in the equity, have some split with your investors. And that's the way you stay totally aligned. And that's just like absolutely wrong. You know, there's no company on earth that was built without revenue, that was built without employees, that was built without money coming in the door. And it's actually very bad for your investors if you don't have that. Talk about that. Did you, you said you made a mistake. What was the mistake that you made exactly? I mean, frankly, I didn't even know if there was such thing as a developer fee until probably two or three years ago. Like, what does a developer do? And I was like, yeah, everything that happens, putting the entire project together, hiring the architects, working with them, like billions and billions of um, value created basically just by developers. But I think the mistake is like early on, I was like, we don't need fees. I'll get it in the project. It'll come at the same time as the investors. But yeah, with that, like wasn't able to hire a construction project manager. I did the accounting and the taxes. Like we just didn't have the right free structure at the beginning. And I think it definitely, yeah, it's hurt us. So would you say it just slowed down the growth that you could have had? Yeah. Yeah. Made it more complicated, kind of a burden for you to handle all of it. Yeah. And if the projects take longer because you don't have the right people, I mean, that's also FBU and for the investors and you're much better off collecting fair fees and getting a project done in 14 months rather than not and getting it done in 20 months. Yeah. People get upset. It hurts the returns. And so, yeah, just charge fair fees and hire big people. As far as advice, you would recommend doing what you, you did, like buy a five or, I mean, I don't know if these are available anymore, you know, a five or $10,000 project and just learn by doing. 
Yeah. And I, I think a lesson both directions is like a 20 unit building is not that much harder than a three unit building. A hundred unit building is not that much harder than a 20 unit building. Like, you know, there are new challenges, but you'll, you would learn a ton by building a guest house onto your house and renting out an Airbnb. Buy a downtown condo that you're going to use, but you know, you're going to fix up the kitchen, you're going to paint and you're going to rent it out or your kids can use it in their town. Like whatever the smallest version is, you know, spend $10,000, spend $20,000, like whatever you can do and just like start. And it's a great way to see if you like it or not. Yeah. And maybe from that one, you're like, oh, this is terrible. And you haven't lost that much money. You have this thing that you can easily sell. You know, you're not, you don't have to go like full bore and try to raise $500,000. And yeah, you could, but you don't have to. It's kind of a low cost experiment. I wanted to segue into talking about pickleball. I know that you were a college swimmer, but now you really got into pickleball. You started a meetup group in Cincinnati. I believe that has what, like 750 members. How'd you get into pickleball initially? In July, a friend of mine from Austin, basically introduced me. I'd never heard of it before. And he'd been telling me about it for a bit because in Austin, that's where all the cool things are. So yeah, we played over 4th of July and it was just, I think the, the magical thing about it is like, it was just so obvious. Like, oh yeah, I get this. Like it was fun the first time. It was the right amount of sort of like physicality. Yeah, maybe, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I did actually move to New York City a year and a half ago. You know, often commuting back to Cincinnati and still have our team there and still buying stuff there. But um, so yeah, we're playing a lot of pickleball in New York, started a meetup and it's great. I didn't realize you're living in New York City. How often are you going back to Cincinnati? Pretty much like once a month. You know, we have you know, three people there and they're on site every day. We have our daily reports. Yeah, you definitely need to be on site every day for construction. But, uh, but yeah, I go back like once a month. I don't know if you've heard about this thing. It's called, it's called the Ace Pickleball Club and it's modeled after Top Golf. I don't know if you've looked into yeah. that. I, I started like doing some preliminary research on the franchise fee and it just seems really cool. Like just pickleball is awesome. You know, you combine it with good food and drinks. It could be a pretty good business model. Yeah, if, you know, of course, you're thinking of like the real estate side of it, same as I am of like, what does that look like? You have this activity that's very popular. What's sort of the real estate angle of that? And I think there's going to be a lot of versions. There's like, a, you know, more suburban, 20 courts, restaurant, bar, all that. And then I think there's, I think there's just going to be a lot of different models, clubs and, you know, pro shops. I even saw an article today on my Google feed about pickleball courts and like not abandoned malls, but malls that are not doing too well. They'll put the, the pickleball courts like, in the corridor of, of a, of a mall, which is kind of cool. I mean, you got the space. If you want to play, there's not a lot of place to play. So yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Us, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's the fastest growing sport in the U S or I guess in the, I don't know if in the world or what, but it's, it's absolutely growing by leaps and bounds. I wanted to ask about your why, why, what's your why that keeps you going when the grind of real estate starts to wear on you, the, the projects you're doing, I've done some to that degree, not to the degree that you're doing them, but they, they can be rough. They can be a, they can be a tough, long slog. What's your why? And what are some ways you do to kind of like recharge? I think in its best days, you know, real estate is like unambiguous that it's important and that it's interesting. I think there's lots of businesses where on down day, like, is this even important? Like I have this app with like photos and things. I don't even care. But like, you know, creating homes, creating places where people work and restaurants, like where people spend their lives uh, is sort of like unambiguously. I think that's like, yeah, like a source of motivation, even on, in the down days. So yeah, I think, I mean, real estate is always going to be part of my life. I think, you know, I am interested in starting businesses, different kinds of businesses. Like there's lots of different paths to take, but I, you know, I just think, you know, a physical space where people are like joyful that, you know, that's like a very worthy way to spend a life. So yeah, I think that's kind of what keeps me on. And then where do you see your company Kunst going in the next five, 10, 15 years? What would you like to see develop? So I think it's an interesting time in the market. You know, I think obviously like debt and equity end up more expensive. I think people are probably a little more wary to invest. You know, we have our current projects. We'll probably buy one or two projects soon and focus on getting those done, doing well on those for the next year. And then seeing what it looks like after that, seeing where the market is, if it's maybe raising a, a larger fund, you know, I think that could be interesting. We're on pause for a little bit. I'm not sure, but. You know, there's a lot of opportunity, I, I do think, in almost every market in the U.S. and maybe beyond that, like historic buildings, historic preservation. You know, we were talking the office conversion, office to residential. Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a niche of real estate that's like quite painful. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. 
And what you're doing with the historic tax credits, would that skill and ability would transfer to any city, correct? I mean, the, the process is the same, whether you're in Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or Tampa or whatever. I mean, the federal program is in the entire country and then each state or most states have their own state program. So yeah, it applies everywhere. And it's, it's like anything, didn't intend this to be the business, but that's just become our expertise. We've probably done more projects, more tax credit projects than, I don't know, maybe almost, almost anyone in Ohio. So yeah, we have the expertise and I think it works a lot of places. If somebody wanted to learn more about historic tax credits, is there a good source you could point them towards a website or podcast or anything that is out there? Yeah, people ask and there aren't a lot, you know, I think maybe I should have done more like writing or creating resources and maybe I still should. But um, yeah, you mentioned the interview with Chris Powers. I hate to, you know, plug me out the thing, but basically me just talking for an hour of tax credits. I think, you know, obviously this, this interview would be like a good resource. So I think those are good. And then, you know, each state has their own website and I find the state websites are much better. The federal website is a uh, federal website. It's not that useful. But the state of Ohio, like you could figure out all the guidelines and just how yeah, the program yeah. works in general. Yeah. And I would say like the people in the state, at least in Ohio, like they want you to get the credits. The whole point of the program is to renovate these buildings well. Like me, if you didn't know what you were doing on the first application, like they're very helpful. You know, there's no mistake that would be disastrous. Like they'll just kind of walk you through it and there's revisions and amendments and all that stuff. So they're very helpful. That's great. I've always kind of dreaded going to the city for plan approval and that kind of stuff, but it sounds like uh, you've had a pretty good experience. So that's awesome. Yeah. Even the city, I mean, you know, the building department, I think it's not the case in all municipalities, but in Cincinnati, they want projects to happen. Their whole purpose is that, you know, development is happening. And we've had plenty of times of just like reaching out directly to the head of the building department. He's like, yeah, I'll take the call. You meet with him for 40 minutes to go through the issue and get results. Really helpful when you can make a phone call like that and figure out the answers to your questions. I wanted to jump into a quick fire round here before we wrap up. And uh, I've got three or four questions that I wanted to put you in the hot seat on. So first one is uh, your favorite Twitter account. So I don't know if you follow Bobby. He's like the Bill James of the architecture floor plans. Bobby Fion, I just had him on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. It is so bizarre to me. He seems to understand like how much money is generated in the floor plans, the unit size, the bedroom size, the number of bedrooms, like all, all that goes into creating a space. Like that's actually where most of the money is. And like, it's very, it's not taken that seriously, I think in general. So I think it's cool that he like takes it that seriously and, and has like a very analytical approach to it. Yeah. He basically said like floor plans are almost like an afterthought for a lot of developers, which seems crazy to me. And what he's doing is just like mapping, creating this proprietary database of all the floor plans that he can gather and figuring out how to maximize what works and what doesn't to maximize rents. And it can be small, pretty low cost things. Yeah. I think for most people, it's like you have a 600 square foot one bedroom and that's like where the math stops. But you know, the difference between whatever 12 foot wide living room and a 14 foot wide living room might be 80 bucks a month in rent. And that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars in real estate value. Yeah. You, you should check out his, uh, his episode should come out, I think next week. So if you get the time, check it out. I th- it was a really good yeah. one. He's a super smart guy, like really fascinating to talk wow. to. Second one, most impactful book. I think there's two. I read less uh, sort of business books now. I just get a little too bored, I think. But um, kind of win friends and influence people. You know, it's a classic that I read in class or two years ago. That's really good. Just basically how to work with people and not be a jerk, I think. But yeah, I mostly read more fiction, sci-fi, stuff like that. And so I like uh, War of the Worlds, like, you know, 1890s sci-fi. Very cool. So the author is, uh, who, who is that? That's H.G. Uh, Wells. H.G. Wells. That's right. We mentioned controversial opinion that you have. Do you have any other controversial opinions about real estate that others may not share? Yeah, I think my one, like selling can be good, you know, don't let people tell you otherwise. Yeah, I think fair fees, I think that's not controversial, but I do think there's a a weird belief of like the operator, you know, charging too much fees and stuff, you know. It probably actually, I would say like my strong belief in historic preservation uh, is pretty counter, I think, to most in a way that I don't quite understand. I think to me, it's pretty obvious that like if you were walking through Paris, I think 92% of people would be like, this is so cool. But they don't quite understand why. And they don't realize that like, you know, that only exists because of like, let's say militant historic preservation. I'm not an absolutist. I think there's plenty of buildings that can and could be torn down and redeveloped and all that. But in general, like I'm very far on the side of pro-preservation. 
And we're lucky that the tax code actually incentivizes it to some degree. Yeah. And, and I think it's like the perfect kind of sort of government intervention. They're not going to overregulate and say, hey, in this area, you need to keep, you know, make out a law that you have to keep all the original windows like that. Insane. But if they're going to incentivize it, they're going to provide this tax break. If you kind of do this above and beyond historic preservation, I think it's like the, the perfect sort of government intervention. Fourth question is, I mentioned I'm renovating this. It's an office building that we started peeling back the drywall and realized we had a ton of exposed brick walls in this building. And the brick's pretty, it's in pretty good shape. The mortar needs some work. How do I match up mortar, the new mortar to match up the old stuff that's over a hundred years old? I cannot get that done. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. So a few ideas. The one is like on the first building, we have the same exact problem and we were taking the tax, historic tax credit very seriously. And you have to match the mortar. And so we tried all this different stuff, custom mortar, custom mixes. We ended up working as like, we use like a wet toothbrush and we just kind of were wiping the brick and then the mortar. And so it kind of was just like a mortar that was closed. But then once you kind of aged it and brought the brick color into it, it looked really good. That might not work really at, at a scale, but wet toothbrush, brick, mortar, that kind of worked. But um, yeah, there are companies that do custom mortar. There's a company in England that we use where you send them a sample and then they send you back the exact mortar color. That can be quite expensive, but that would probably like the proper way to do it. And then the final way, which I've only recently discovered is like an acid wash where you're going to do like a mortar kind of as close as possible, brick as close as possible if you're repairing that, but then you're doing like an acid wash that kind of uh, like blends. That's what we do, like a muratic acid wash. It's not fun to do, but it, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, the brick looks amazing afterwards. It's well worth it. Do you ever paint brick or is that like just a sin to you? I like it personally, but, um, historics, you know, the historic viewers typically don't like it. And so we, we've done facades and that ends up looking really nice. Cool. John, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time today for our listeners that want to learn more about you or to reach out to you. What's the best way for them to do that? Twitter is probably the best. John J. Blackford, I think on Twitter. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I've responded to every DM we've ever gotten. You know, I try to be helpful to people. I, I'm grateful for people that have been helpful to me. And so if I can help anyone or provide any sort of guidance, I'm happy to. So yeah, I think Twitter is the best way. Okay, cool. John, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.